This is SciBite, episode 136 for July 15, 2014. And welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our excellent host, Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. So uh, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at Voyager 1 reading a tsunami wave from the sun, SpaceX launching satellites into space, and testing in new reusable systems. Oh. Story of spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Heather, there's only one choice left to be made at this point, and that is to kick it off with the news. Okay, Ms. Heather, where do we start? Today, we're going to start with... NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft has experiencing a new, quote, tsunami wave from the sun as it is sailing through interstellar space. Now, this kind of a tsunami wave is what led scientists to the conclusion that we had crossed into interstellar space uh, in the fall of 2013. And that was say, yes, we've left the sun's, you know, bubble and we've crossed into the new frontiers. Now, it was the... uh, you know, they kind of say that normally interstellar space, kind of like a quiet lake. But when the sun has a giant burst, like a coronal mass ejection, and sends out this shock wave, and it went out and it reached Voyager last year. And the wave, you know, has uh, kind of causes these plasma to cross around the surrounding the spacecraft, and it makes uh, some noise, actually. They, well, sort of, it causes it to kind of sing, to vibrate. Hmm. Now, the Data from that latest tsunami was created, uh, sort of confirmed that um, data from last fall. We saw it once. We're like, hey, we see this. It, all the data adds up. Yes, we've been in interstellar space. And now we've seen it again. We're like, yes, we have confirmation. We've seen it again. So you know, the sun goes through periods of increased activity and decreased activity. And that's, you know, flinging off these coronal mass ejections. You know, we see them occasionally where it kind of cre- uh, creates aurora where it's flinging off chunks of essentially the sun, you know, creates shock, pressure, waves. And there's three of these that have reached Voyager since it has entered interstellar space back in 2012. The first one was too small to really be noticed. And really, they only saw it once they saw uh, when the second one happened. It was a larger one. And that's when they said, wow, yes, we have an interstellar space. Mm. And they started going backwards and saying, oh, wow, we see another one that was much smaller. They were kind of able to see it once they looked back in the data. Now, this is the third time it's happened. Thanks to that, we've been definitely, you know, confirmation of this of these readings. So okay. it's sort of this, you know, it's a interstellar space, and it's this weird way, ver, kind of space of it's still in the, quote, solar system. Sure. But in inside interstellar space. It's this weird combination of things because of how things are orbiting around the sun, but interstellar space is where it kind of, things are outside this sort of bubble around the sun that is, you know, protecting it from everything inside it from more of the galactic rays. 
and galactic plasma. Hmm. And so what this is able to do is it sort of is reading this plasma. And so it kind of shows, you know, confirming it. It's saying, hey, we've broken through this uh, bubble of the heliosphere of the sun. So we are seeing uh, things from the galaxy now. So it's very interesting that we've kind of got a chance to confirm this. So I guess this tells us uh, something that we, it sort of settles something that we've been kind of kicking around for a while, and that's essentially, yes, that it is now at the boundary, and it's, it's beyond maybe even our solar system. Is that, what we're, is that what you're telling me? Yes, is we've had confirmation that it is in interstellar space. Wow, okay, well, that's it. So this, it kind of feels like it's, oh, my gosh, it's there, oh, my gosh, it's there, it's not there, oh, my gosh, it's there, it's not there, and then now we're there, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, it's totally there, no bigs. Yeah, we have saw the data that said, Hey, we've seen the data. It says, yes, we are in interstellar space. We saw that last fall and, you know, fall of 2013. And now it's happened. Once again, we've been able to see this sort of wave and give us this data that says, yes, we've seen it happen again. So it's, you know, it's happened a second time. We still see the same results. So another check mark on that saying, yes, we're even more certain that everything is in, you know, all the ducks are in a row that we are in interstellar space. Hmm. Well, there you go. Look at us, interstellar travelers now. It's official, Heather. We've officially become interstellar travelers, the human race. That's pretty cool. Any other thoughts on that story? Not as, as it keeps uh, trekking along. Let's uh, see what happens. All righty. Well, then, uh, we'll just take a quick moment here. I want to share something so cool with you guys. I am so jazzed up about a new book that I found. It's an audible book. You know me. I'm a big audio listener and... Uh, Surprise, surprise, if you're a podcaster or a podcast listener, you might also be a good Audible uh, candidate. I want to tell you about The Martian. A lot of people are talking about this right now. I picked it up a few days ago, and I'm in love with it. First of all, it's so science rich. In fact, it's, it's perfect for our audience for, of SciBite. It is so good. I wanted to play a clip of it for you. Uh, just so you can get a sense of it. It's called The Martian by Andy Weir. We'll have a link at the top of the SciBite show notes. If you click that link, it is an affiliate link, so a little kickback goes to Jupiter Broadcasting. This is a page turner. I want to play a sample for you. Let's see. Where do I begin? The Ares program. Mankind reaching out to Mars to send people to another planet for the very first time and expand the horizons of humanity, blah, blah, blah. The Ares-1 crew did their thing and came back heroes. They got the parades and fame and love of the world. Ares-2 did the same thing in a different location on Mars. They got a firm handshake and a hot cup of coffee when they got home. Ares-3, well, that was my mission. Okay, not mine, per se. Commander Lewis was in charge. I was just one of her crew. Actually, I was the very lowest-ranked member of the crew. I would only be in command of the mission if I were the only remaining person. What do you know? I'm in command. <laughs> that gives you an idea. It's an incredible story, and uh, it's called The Martian. Get it in paperback if you would. If you Just listen, watch it, listen, read it, whatever it is. But Audible is a good place to go if you want to listen like I do. Helps in the car while you're doing chores and stuff like that. It's called The Martian, and it is a really great book. Uh, and uh, it makes you think about what it would really be like if you're one of the first people to live on Mars or maybe get stranded there. And you see it, at least so far in the book, through the um, perspective of his journals that he's keeping for historical purposes. And so there's some the, the, the way they utilize that is really clever because uh, sometimes they're able to skip over some of the boring stuff because it's, you're just reading different journal entries. And sometimes one journal entry plays off another. It's 
super great book, The Martian. And you can uh, support uh, the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, too, by using the link that is in our show notes if you want to grab that. And uh, we would appreciate it. Also, uh, just a little heads up, starting next week, SciBite will be on a summer hiatus. I'm going off to uh, OSCON uh, the next week, and then we're going to start from there. And uh, we'll be off in the evenings on uh, for the summer. We'll be back in September, and we'll give you more info on that as that gets closer. So follow Heather and I. That's the, bl- that's the best way. Heather is JB underscore Mars underscore base. And uh, you can follow me. I am Chris LAS on the tweeters. And then that way, uh, you, if you follow us there, even if you're not a Twitter member, you can still just follow us there and find out uh, when the science returns. But Heather, with the plugs done, I think that means it's time for a news bite. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the news bite? SpaceX has successfully launched six Orbcom advanced telecommunication satellites into orbit on Monday, July the 14th, and has really upgraded the speed and capacity of their uh, data relay networks. Hey-oh. So the, what they were also able to do is they were able to use this opportunity to try to test a reusable, uh, their reusable system. There's the first stage system. They were able to go up, land the system. They were kind of testing it while splashing down in the ocean, so it was kind of in a safer location. Unfortunately, the booster did not survive splashdown. Um, the Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX, said that during reentry, the landing burn and leg deployment worked well, but that the whole lost integrity right after splashdown. So they're kind of reviewing all the telemetry, the data, to see if, was it due to the splashdown itself? Was it possibly due to it, you know, tipping over and body, you know, belly, belly flopping in the ocean? So they're kind of looking at exactly what happened to for it to lose its integrity or you know, collapse. And depending upon that, they'll be able to kind of go for it. They can't reuse that one, obviously, because it's no longer in a reusable position. Mm-hmm. But... If they're able to use this in the future, then they'll be able to, you know, fly back, essentially return the first stage of the rocket. You know, it'll go up, launch it, it'll come back down to the ground, uh, sort of land like a helicopter. And in that case, you'll be able to reuse that first stage of the rocket, which will be able to mean you can go faster. I mean, you just essentially, you know, reload the fuel and you're ready to go. It'll drop the cost of everything a great deal. So then it's... So we're able to decrease costs, make things go, you know, roll over a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that'll continue on a good course. On the whole, they've got, it's sort of the first of, you know, this is the first six satellites that they've launching. They're hoping to do, you know, full 17 different satellite constellations. They're hoping to have them all in orbit by the end of uh, this year. So hopefully everything will be going well for them as to launching and getting everything in orbit and to get their uh, stage one reusable uh, systems going as well. Hmm. Very good. Well, uh, so a little trouble, but uh, not worse for the wear. The, the, battle, the battle may have taken uh, some losses, but the war continues on successfully for SpaceX. Yes. Uh, Heather, uh, the band just showed up, so that must mean, sure enough, it's time for the two-byte news. I said it's time for the two-byte news. Hey band. hey, band, what did you give your four feet? Yeah, yeah, I want you to play now. Go. Oh, yeah. There you go. Ah. 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 All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? 
All right. A new study has finds that very few scientists, actually fewer than 1%, manage to actually publish a paper every year. I've always wondered about this. But those scientists dominate the journals, having their names on 41% of all the papers. Mm-hmm. So this is a research from uh, an epidemiologist from Stanford University in California going through with some colleagues from SciTech Strategies. They kind of went through and they went and said, all right, let's look at papers published between 96 and 2011. 15 million scientists worldwide in a whole bunch of different disciplines. And they kind of went down the numbers. And they went, all right, you know, how many have been published in published one article? How many published two or more, three or more, and one like that. And it was, you know, just this tiny percentage of the people had their names on so many of these papers. And it kind of made sense in the fact, once they started looking at it, in the fact that many of the, the people that had their names on, many, on a lot of papers were the heads of laboratories or research groups. So the people bringing in the funding, their supervisors. So they put their names on the papers, all the papers that go through there. Other scientists, you know, to have the job security go through and do a whole bunch of research themselves, you know, from highly protective labs, they can also go in and put their names on there. You know, stamp their name on something they put a lot of research into. Right. And you go down the, the list of people and now you have poor, you know, grunt research scientists or doctoral students uh, who are doing a lot of, they're kind of, you know, the, they call it the, uh, the cheap workforce that are doing a lot of different projects in a lot of different places, they're not gonna get their they're not gonna get their names published on any, if at all, papers, even though they may spend years on a research in that field. So it's kind of like that. It's interesting because I remember going in college, I did a work study program for my uh, astronomy professor. And one of the major things he had me doing was going through all these different uh, you know, journals because he was trying to get something published and he was having a hard time getting it published. And it was go through all of these and this is the kind of thing, this is the place where I'm doing. Go through and find everyone who's publishing something about the topic that I am and figure out what they're saying and what makes it different from what we're trying to say. Mm. It's like, what's the magic combination of what, what makes my, me not be able to get my foot in the door? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what brought me back to it. I was like, yeah, it kind of is strange where, you know, you, there's only so many names that go on a, on a paper. And who gets the names on the paper? The top brass. Right. And the top brass are going to be the same people at any given lab or research facility, even though they may be doing, you know, six to 10 to 50 different projects at any given time, depending mm. on the size of them. You know, if it's a very large company or something, you're a big lab, you're going to be doing 10 different, you know, major so projects. Rank, and Rank has its rewards in the sense that if you're sitting at the top of that structure, your name goes on a lot of those papers. Yeah, then your your name is, you know, top on the list saying, yeah, well, I'm bringing in the money. I'm, I'm, I'm managing I'm, all of this. I am managing all of it. My name goes on it. So it was interesting in the fact that they were kind of saying, well, there's a kind of a very per small percentage of the people who are actually getting their names stamped on these things. You know, and they're they're going through and they're saying, yeah, well, then maybe do you need to go through and say, hey, give the people who are actually working on it names on there, give other people, you know, these younger people a chance to get their names on things, kind of actually juggle names as to who actually worked on it, 
and put their names on there. Doesn't this so seem doesn't this seem something like the internet would be better at scaling and solving because you can have communities and you can have large communities online and you can have peer groups and people recognize other people. Like the problem with the papers is essentially it's a it's a very limited resource and commodity. There's only so much room for names and etc. And so you can only put so many names on a piece of on a paper that you're gonna you're gonna put out everywhere. But something that's online that's like a living document or something like that, there's no limit. Well, in some cases, a journal will say, you may only have this many authors. You know, for a patent, you can only have right. four names. Yeah. You know, for a, you know, an article that you submit to this specific journal, that specific journal, they may say, you may have no more than six names attached to this. Otherwise, if you have a lab, you're going to put, you know, 50 different names on there. And they don't want that. They don't want... You know, a whole page full of names. Hmm. So hmm. there's they they give a limit. They say we don't. They'll say you know we only want this many names on there, oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so that's a sucky situation. It's, yeah, it's a you know, and for when they were printing it on paper, right? Then it made it it was definitely a big difference because you're going to be printing a magazine or a book, and you want that concise. You want to say. You are given very specific rules about your margins have to be this big. You must have this many words. You cannot take up this much more pages. Your you know, title has to be this long. You can have no more authors than this many because they are trying to fit in so many different things into this book or into this magazine. So now that it is on the Internet, they may be able to be more liberal with some of this and say now you can have more people's names on there. Your you know, abstracts can... You know, they can start being a little more flexible with things. Hmm. It's a problem I never even really gave any consideration to, Heather. I've seen it because I've seen uh, our, you know, I've had things sure, submitted I bet. to. Yeah. You know, I've, I have name on a patent. I've had things submitted to, you know, uh, college books. You know, so it's like there's only so many names allowed on there. Right. And you have to have it for, you know, there's all these rules and regulations about these various things. Right. You know, you know, for you know, stuff I've had that have been has been submitted to, you know, uh, patents or books or journals or things like that. So it, was, it kind of was an interesting thing where I've seen that where there's really specific tight rules. So I know that side of it, and I also see like, yeah, because there's especially with you know in a small company like I work with, then it's. You know, there's only so many of us that work on a project and you kind of all shuffle names around. And you're like, OK, well, that we're being fair. You kind of, you know, share and share alike, you know, move the names around as to who worked on it. You know, the, the people that worked on it the most. Mm -hmm. But in, you know, very large companies and really large laboratories, then it's going to be a little more difficult where, like you said, the people, the top people at the brands have their, the, the brass. You know, the top people at the top right. have their little stamp and they go, ka-chunk, yeah. there we go. Yep, they get the... They Push get their the, paper out the door. Exactly. They get the last the last stamp. Uh, well, I have something that might make you feel a little better. How about a science update? Does that sound good? Hopefully. All right, what is our science update? Unfortunately, the update is not necessarily all good news, but science gets updated. That's That uh, part is good, right. Yes, Back in March, we talked of uh, the Mississippi baby. It was a child known that was an infant that was seemingly cured of HIV. 
it was a reported case where there was this prolonged remission of HIV infection. Now, after two years of not taking any therapy without any evidence, they have actually seen some evidence. There's detectable levels of HIV now. Mm, wow. So this was a case where the child was born prematurely in a clinic to an HIV-infected mother who did not receive any medication or prenatal treatment at all, wasn't even diagnosed with HIV treatment until the time of delivery. And at that point, they said, there's really high case of exposure um, when an infant is born. So I went, okay, well, before they even got the results back as to whether the baby was infected, they started this triple drug treatment. They went, all right, well, let's just go for it. And actually it came back that the baby was infected. And they had this really hard, you know, active treatment until it was about 18 months old. And then baby up and disappeared with mom. Then came back months later without any drugs and they couldn't see any HIV. And so they did well. The kid, you know, the child did well without any meds, without any anything for, without any detectable HIV for more than two years. Now during a, a routine clinical care visit earlier this month, uh, very rare, um, mild detectable levels of HIV in the blood. Mm. They've started up the, you know, uh, drugs. You know, they've started up antiretroviral therapy. Doing fine on that, no side effects. Um, And it is the same infection that was had the the mom. But in this case, it's sort of a, a mixed bag where there was, a researchers were going through a whole program where they're like okay in this case let's go through and do a big trial about can this work mm-hmm. this big clinical trial so now they're saying okay take it back half a step let's review what this you know everything that's being said and what this is showing us and kind of do we need to redirect anything i mean no matter what they're trying to figure out what happened that you this you know, this child was able to be in remission for two years. Generally, you can see those levels rebound within weeks mm. if you stop medication. Yeah. And in this case, it was years. So they're trying to figure out, well, what caused that? Right. Well, do we give it a major blow? Like, what happened there? Yeah. So it's like, what combination of things happened? And can we repeat that? And is that, you know, it wasn't a permanent thing, obviously, but it lasted two years can you know is there some sort of tweaking that can be done to make it last longer or even at you know two years if you can do something that you know a treatment that lasts you know an extended period of time that you don't have to take drugs as often then that would be a a, you know would be really good too Mm -hmm. so they're kind of taking it back and they're saying okay well let's look at the clinical trial let's look at take into account this account this new development say all right there's going to be it's only going to change it a little bit but they are going to kind of look at it maybe a little bit different maybe try to figure out what they need to tweak or change and so it still reminds us that we have a lot to learn right about these very difficult uh, you know infections and drugs and things like that but hopefully this this obviously still teaches us a lot about um HIV and everything. So it's a major step forward. We just have to figure out exactly what was happening. 
and take it as it is and take step it as a learning step. experience. Yeah. 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 Bit by bit. Well, while we're in the update mood, how about a spacecraft update about what's quickly becoming one of my favorite spacecrafts? Yes, the ISEE-3 reboot project. This was the satellite that NASA thought they turned the lights off on decades ago. And they touched base with it and in the 90s and went, oh, wait, we didn't turn you off? Huh. <laughs> you know, Except Heather, then, I notice a lot of people are talking about this now, too. People are getting pretty yes. interested in this. Yes. I mean, this community fund, you know, community effort went through these engineers went through and raised money to to fix it. I mean, they built the hardware and the software to talk to it because NASA didn't have any of that anymore. Mm-hmm. So they went through it and they sent a first they were able to spin it up at the right um, at the right weight, and then they went to alter its trajectory, and they were able to get the first burn off, and then they went to do the second one. Something happened. It didn't go off. So they were trying to figure out what happened. Was, there, was it out of fuel? Was there a leak? So there were some various problems that they were really trying to narrow down and figure out. Hmm. And so they sent out a tweet and said, hey, experts need it. Here's our data. Everybody, talk to us. And so that's what happened. They had some top experts in the fields come in, talk to them, really look at the data, and gave them some ideas about what was happening. And they said, hey, we actually think that what's happened is that you know, there's some vapor lock almost, is that the fuel over this period of time has vaporized and you know, soaked into these various locations, so now you need to clear out the lines, sort of hoping to like heat and kind of heat the whole system, pulse it so they hopefully clear the gas out of it. But it's funny because one of the tweets was like, we are the Borg. Yeah. Because it's like our, you know, our entire internet knowledge has come together to fix this. Right. Like we still maintain our individuality, but all of us together have come together. The hive is working. working. Yeah. Yes, the hive <laughs> has come together and is, is working on this. All of us together are making this work. And that's it's interesting because that's the whole point of it is there is this group of you know community of scientists and engineers that came together and went, we're going to do this. And they wrote it in open source, you know, software. They were able to go to the top pe- some top people in open source and say, hey, you know, can you guys help us, you know, double check our stuff? And they were able to help them double check our stuff for, you know, on the cheap or free. And then they're able to go to the, you know, tweet out to, to all the peoples that follow them and say, hey. We need your help. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. And people can come in and say, hey, we think this, and go through all that and say, wow, these are some top people in the fields. These are actually you know, good ideas. Let's actually work together with them and go in deeper into the software and the hardware and talk about the nitty-gritty details of everything that's going on Right, right. and get into the fix. And they're able to do it really fast, actually. It's kind which of amazing. Was good because time is of the essence for this thing. Yeah, it's amazing combination of crowdsourcing information, uh, average people having access to a new category of technology, and the glue that makes all of it work is the uh, GNU radio stuff. Uh, a lot of the open yeah. source technology they're using there, the software defined radio, which also pulls in a bunch of open source. It's it's amazing. Uh, it, it's kind of like um, it's kind of like 
when you would watch a movie in the 80s and they would show like punk hackers in the future and how they would be able to like hack into a satellite remotely, man, <laughs> using using like they take a board and they'd program the board. Now they could talk to the satellite. That That's that's actually happening now. <laughs> like, yeah. It's incredible. Those group of engineers came and said, hey, let's let's all kickstart this. And everyone went together, kickstarted it with money. And now they're kickstarting, you know, sort of with knowledge and everybody's kicking in their knowledge and it's really cool the way this is working out and i'm like yeah definitely like watching this every day yeah yeah i've got a whole yeah. bunch of copies about you know some of the the top tweets that i was really watching but yeah heather has a great tweet uh, timeline of the best tweets listed in the show notes so if you're not following them on twitter you're not a twitter user heather's got the best stuff in the show notes for uh episode 136 all right, Heather. Well, you know, I like my updates and triplets, so uh, what do you say we do ourselves a curiosity update? Are you ready? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. All right, okay. okay. Uh, how is our favorite rover doing, Heather? Our rover is still on its cross-country venture. Aww. It's got about... You know, it's two, two and a half miles to its entryway so it can hit the gap in the dunes. Sure. So it can kind of turn in towards the mountains. Right in the gap. Yep. We've, you know, it's been talking with its uh, its stunt double cousin here back on Earth. That's funny. So they're kind of using it to to help track out their idea using the Mars, or, uh, Mars Orbiter mission to look at, to help also kind of peer down from the sky to help track down their idea ideas about where they're going to go. Um, they're looking back on some old data. They've still got um, some dirt from their last digging location ready to do some more onboard testing for that. You know, so there's a whole bunch of different stuff going on while they're making their cross-country trek. So. Oh, curiosity. You just keep being awesome, okay? You just keep being awesome. Uh, speaking of awesome, guess what? We have a time machine, and we're about to get in it. Come on, Heather, let's go. You feel it up, hopefully. Whoa! Yes. I told you to feel it up. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is the week I switched to solar, and we had a lot of sunshine. Batteries are charged, good. which is a good, good thing. Because I don't know if we've ever gone this far back. <laughs> this is unbelievable. 2,723 years ago, July 17th, 709 B.C. Heather, what happened this week in science 709 bc the yeah 709 earliest, bc <laughs> the earliest record of a confirmed total solar eclipse was written about in china wow from i'm not even going to bother saying the word because i'm going to horribly terribly chop it up in horrible ways uh, they were talking about uh you know in this date of this month of this year the sun eclipsed and it was total and it was sort of talking about there were they're describing how this, the moon went in front of the sun completely, talking mm. about you know, how it was you know, totally black and yellow above and yellow below. And they're able to go back through you know, software and math and everything and kind of go back and say, at this location, yes, astronomically speaking, there was a solar eclipse. All the calculations say there was one here at this date. Wow. Which is why they say, yes, it is confirmed. So it's the earliest recorded solar eclipse that we have actually confirmed. We, yes, we know it's this specific location, this specific date, that all the calculations say, correct, that is there, and it is a totality. There one. you go. 
That's amazing. 709 BC. It's amazing to even have records from then. That that on itself is incredible. Uh, all right, Heather, well, let me recalibrate this eye by 2000 so we can look up into the sky this week. All right. On Friday, July the 18th, around mid, uh, we've got last quarter moon. On Saturday, July the 19th, Mars. We were talking about it last week. Yeah. Mars and Spica. Mars is a great orange-red, and Spica is the giant blue-red, sorry, giant blue-white star. It's nice blue-white in there. So the combination of the red and the white are very nice. Right now, they're still about less than three degrees apart, which is with the two fingers held at arm's length. They are sinking slower and slower into the southwest at dusk. On the whole, Mercury is in the dawn skies. Low in this glow of the horizon, about seven degrees to the lower left of Venus all week long. I see that. That's, that's cool. That's a little over the width of uh, all your fingers held together at arm's length, so not too far apart from each other. Venus is in the dawn, also low in the east-northeast. We've got Mars in the dusk. We were talking about that. High in the southwest with Spica very near it. They're starting to slowly drift apart. But on Saturday, are still still less than three degrees apart, so still less than a couple of fingers together. Jupiter, Hey-o. poor Jupiter is still hiding in the sunset. Mm. He's taking a nap. Oh, I see that. Yeah, boy, you can hardly even see Jupiter with that sun right there. Yep. But Saturn is hanging out at twilight, visible, highest in the sky during twilight in the south to southwest, to the upper left or left, depending on the part of the week you're talking about of Mars and Spica. So we've got combinations of them. We've got Saturn and Mars in twilight over to the south and southwest. We've got Mercury and Venus at dawn over into the east to northeast. So they're all kind of grouping together this week. Very nice, Heather. That's a pretty good sky. That's not that's not bad. I mean, I'd like to see Jupiter pop out a little more and uh, come out and play, but uh, well, we get, we, get, we get Jupiter or everyone else has to get together in order to like balance out, I guess. <laughs> I guess so, because Jupiter takes up a lot of space when Jupiter's in the house. Uh, also, uh, just a reminder, uh, we will be on summer hiatus until September. So, uh, again, you can check JB underscore Mars underscore base or Chris LAS for more on Twitter. And also, you could just subscribe to the RSS feed. And then you just get it automatically when we put out a new show. Heather, is there anything else we want to cover this week? Not that I can think of. All right, Heather. Well, uh, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning this week's episode of SciBot. I normally tell you to tune in live but we won't be here next week but you can always check out our show times over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar i guess that would be the other place you could watch to see when sidebite will pop up on that calendar all right everyone we'll have a great summer and thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of sidebite we'll see you right back here real soon